0: This is a podcast about Jeopardy! Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast, where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle.
1: And I'm Emily, and this is the week of September 13th. Uh, it is the first yes, week is. of season. We made it 38. Yay. And if you, uh, turned on the TV on September 13th and you were like, Mike Richards, why am I seeing his face? <laughs> I thought they fired him. Um, this, that's because this is the, Uh, One week of episodes, which taped on the day before all the stuff that happened, happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, You probably know if you're listening to this podcast that Jeopardy tapes uh, five episodes on a tape day. So they taped a full week of episodes with Mike Richards. And then the Claire McNear article came out and... uh, Things snowballed from there, but we have this this mm-hmm. fabulous time capsule. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> this this moment <laughs> suspended.
1: I should stop. I'm a minister. Um, yeah. So we <laughs> we have uh, we have these these five days of Mike Richards thinking it is the first week of his new permanent hosting gig. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, he did a fine job. He,
0: he did. Okay. He read the clues. Um, the interview was a little unnatural, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, a bit forced, but whatever. I think, how would I do in that situation? Pretty poorly. But then again, I also didn't declare myself king of Jeopardy. (laughs) So I I feel like the the stakes or the the expectation should be a little yep. higher, um, but yeah he we definitely uh, I'm sure everyone noticed he came on stage he thanked Johnny Gilbert said welcome to Jeopardy and then the rest of the camera shots were focused on Matt and the other two contestants mm-hmm. uh, as they most likely uh, heavily edited what he had to say yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I,
1: yep. I I saw that I saw that abrupt cut, and I was like, "Oh, they had to make some changes."
0: <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah, not surprising.
1: Yeah. But yeah. Uh. Yep. Uh. They also have dedicated uh the stage to the memory of Alex Trebek. It is now the Alex mm-hmm. Trebek stage, and they did a little uh a little uh shot of that at the top of the episode and they have new opening credits, which I thought were great with, you know, kind of jeopardy through the years and, um, some iconic shots. I don't know. I like, I like the new, the new credit sequences.
0: Yeah. That come out. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a variation on last seasons, but it's nice to see yep. change. Yeah. I wonder if they will, if, if Johnny Gilbert will say from the Alex Trebek stage for every episode, Yeah. or if, or if there will come a point where, he stops.
1: Mm-hmm. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder. So, uh, <laughs> cutting our opening remarks, abruptly <laughs> getting right into it. <laughs> um, we have the contestants Gabby Kim, a mother of two, and doula from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Omde Mengistu, a legal recruiter from Brooklyn, New York. And Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose 18-day total is And uh, so at the beginning of this week, he is heading toward beating Julia Collins in the total number of games won. And uh, probably everybody knows he makes it. He makes it there this week. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah. So in the Jeopardy round, we have the categories sounds like tennis that's Canadian Entertainment, Tasty Business, Somebody Wrote That, No Man, and Is An Island. Um, tasty Business turned out to be um, businesses with food names, such as Wasabi and Banana Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There were some good food categories and questions this week.
0: Yes. There's also... In this game, a lot of Matt counting on his fingers.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah. uh, We started, I think, like right off the top um, uh, with the the $1,000 level of somebody wrote that. They were asking for uh, the title of, I can't remember the exact wording of the clue, NJ Archive is down, but uh, like a a famous letter reassuring a young girl or something like that. Uh, Seven word title. And Matt was counting on his fingers to make sure he had seven words for, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. But then in the Double Jeopardy round, we had the seven syllable words category where he counted on his fingers quite a bit. Yeah. He has uh, vociferously defended his decision to count on his fingers on Twitter. And I'm on his side he said if you're go- if you're choosing between making yourself look dumb but slightly increasing your chances of being successful or trying to look cool <laughs> but
0: potentially get it wrong yeah
1: like go go yeah. like count on your fingers yeah yep do i remember correctly Kyle that how great thou art is a hymn that you've mm-hmm. incorporated into your composing
0: it is you do you do remember that correctly yes uh that was my grandmother's favorite hymn Mm. and so my the symphony that I dedicated to her is based on that hymn nice yeah they gave how great in quotes (laughs) for like they gave you half the title in the in the clue Mm -hmm. um which I mean if you don't know hymns if you don't know you know Christian hymns then like how are you gonna get that of course but yeah uh they, they gave quite a bit away. Yeah. I thought.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Um, yeah. That was in the somebody wrote that category at the $600 level. And um, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Gabby got that one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah she did. Mm-hmm. Daily double number one is in the is an island category. It's at the $600 level. Uh, Matt finds it. He is already up to 5,400. It's pick number 11, and he bets it all, as we should expect him to do at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he gets the clue. One third of Earth's lava flow since 1500 is said to have come from volcanoes in this Atlantic island nation. And he gets it correct with what is Iceland. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of Atlantic island nations to choose from.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I feel like we should highlight the uh, the moment with the... Um, uh, the question. The, the form yeah, of a question. Like the form of a question. That's Canadian entertainment at the $400 level. Um, so the, the clue was, you ought to know this Ottawa-born singer imported Flea and Dave Navarro to play on that song. Omday rang in and said, is that Alanis Morissette? Um <laughs> And the answer is yes. And that is in the form of a question. Um, mm-hmm. The phrasing threw some people off, but I, I kind of love it. Um, and then somebody on Reddit, I don't remember who, like, submitted a, a modest proposal that, like, that the the phrasing, is that blank, satisfies Jeopardy's requirements and maybe feels more natural. Or mm-hmm. is it, you know, is it Cuba? You know, is it? Pulp fiction? Like is it, you know, um right. and would, it, would it maybe does feel more natural. Maybe yeah. would maybe would be easier to do, and maybe contestants should consider it as their as their strategy. Hmm. Yeah. That's
0: an interesting point. Uh so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt is up to fourteen thousand eight hundred. Gabby is at twenty four hundred, and Omdi is at uh one thousand four hundred. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. First day on the job. Facts About Animals, Quote the Maven, Authors Not Authoring, The Best Supporting Actor Oscar Goes To, and Seven Syllable Words. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Uh, It's nice
0: that they pointed out his first day on the job.
1: mm. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure what comes to before anti-penultimate, but... (laughs) All right, stop it, Emily, stop it. I have learned at least two times that the word "maven" is not necessarily feminine; it is gender neutral. I I associate it with women. I, I think of it as a as a as a gendered term, but it's not.
0: That's interesting. I always do too. I don't know.
1: Yeah. So Matt was counting on his fingers for the. The seven syllable words, um, which mostly helped him. But at the $1,600 level, he counted on his fingers, but still only managed to get to six syllables. Um, he was trying to come up with oversimplification, but the, his guess was underestimation. So Amde got the rebound on that one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Daily double number two comes up in the author's category at the $2,000 level. It's the 12th pick and Matt finds this one. He's at $22,000 at this point with Omde at $3,400 and Gabby at $4,400. And Matt Weider $6,000. He gets the clue. She studied medicine at Johns Hopkins before moving to Paris in 1903. And drove an ambulance for the French in World War One. And he seems really stumped by this. And then as the time is just about to run out, he blurts out who what's Stein um, and gets it correct. Gertrude Stein mm-hmm. is the is the correct response. Almost yes, everything I know about Gertrude Stein I learned from Marianne Borer.
0: Yeah, <laughs> me me too. Yep. <laughs> You can go back and check out that, uh, that guest spot, listeners, if you haven't, or if you'd like to refresh yourself. Daily Devil number three is in the facts about animals category. Uh, it's at the $1,200 level. Uh, Matt finds this one as well, so he got all three. We get back to back Daily Devils. Yay! Doubles.
1: Back to back!
0: Matt's up to 28,000, and he wagers another 4,000. He gets the clue. When faced with danger, certain ducks, snakes, and mammals do this called thanatosis. And he gets that correct with what is Play Dead.
1: Mm -hmm. So at the end of Double Jeopardy, um, Matt is in a commanding lead with 42,800. Gabby's at 7,200. Amde is at 5,400. We have the final Jeopardy category, the 13 colonies. And the clue founded by an advocate of religious freedom, it was the site of America's first Baptist church and oldest synagogue. So we go to um, Omde first. Um, He has written, what is Providence, Rhode Island? Um, That is not correct. He was too specific. And he has wagered everything. So he drops to zero. Gabby has written the correct response. What is Rhode Island? Uh, The synagogue was not in Providence. um, Although my understanding is that the Baptist church was. Uh, And Gabby has wagered. One thousand seven hundred ninety-nine, bringing her up to eight thousand nine hundred ninety-nine. And Matt has the correct response with what is Rhode Island, and he's wagered twenty-five thousand dollars, so almost as big as he could have gone. He could have gone a little yeah. bigger safely. That brings him up to sixty-seven thousand eight hundred dollars, and um gives him his his nineteenth win.
0: Yes. Yeah. Indeed. So on Tuesday, we have the contestants Elizabeth Hunter, a community theater artistic director from Somerville, Massachusetts, Daniel Lee, a tutor from Ridgewood, New York, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose now 19 day total is $642,601. And we have the Jeopardy Round categories Recent Fiction, The Wild West, Game Stop, Holidays and observances, reality show winners, and structural idioms.
1: They they threw the phrase potent potables in in the GameStop category at the thousand dollar level, which mm-hmm. I always like. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the clue there was a hand in this card game with two potent potables in its name comes to a halt after a player knocks, um, and that is gin rummy. I think Elizabeth got that one. They're they're not giving us shout-outs every time they use the phrase potent potables. We, of course, are potent potables, but I, I like to think right. that maybe,
0: maybe... Maybe it's a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we know. So we Oh, we haven't checked the, the writer's bios to see if they've updated anything. Mm. We'll check for next week.
1: Yeah. Did you know that the bank can't go broke in Monopoly?
0: I did not know that. Yeah. Have we talked about how there's a different version that's socialist and meant to be where everybody is happy at the end
1: yes i have we have we i mean i i know that and you know i don't know if we've talked about about it on the the podcast podcast. yeah um yes and the game of monopoly was was um like plagiarized from its original creator who created it as like with two sets of rules one in one of them you try to you know like vanquish all your opponents by accruing all the wealth and in the other you try to like work together to create prosperity and you know it was supposed to be like right.
0: a-, <laughs> a critique of capitalism yes. rather than a celebration
1: <laughs> yes yeah. um yeah monopoly is a bad game
0: I uh, only, only if you lose that,
1: yeah, I mean, <laughs> so like the the clue here was the bank cannot go broken this Parker Brothers game, so exhaustion may be the deciding factor, right, and like there's a game design problem mm-hmm. when it is a hallmark of the game that it goes until you absolutely cannot stand playing it anymore, and you're still not even close to ending, you know,
0: sure. Is it a feature or is it a bug, Emily? I'm not sure. That's
1: the question, isn't it? Daily Double number one uh, comes up in the Wild West at the $400 level. It's the 15th pick, and Matt finds it. He has $7,600 at this point uh, to Daniel's $1,800 and Elizabeth's $800, and he makes it a true Daily Double. And he gets the clue... Founded in 1876, this South Dakota city was named for the deceased trees found in the area. And he gets that one correct with what is Deadwood. I thought that of Mike Richards' awkward, stilted interviews, this day had the most awkward one. Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, for sure. Oh,
1: my gosh. Yeah. So apparently Daniel... Handwrote the Bible in English and in Korean. And Mike Richards really wanted it to be like a warm, fuzzy, edifying thing. But Daniel described it as a forced labor of love, that it was more out of filial piety than religious piety, and that it was not by choice. And like the whole thing was so awkward. And Mike Richards kept trying to push to like, but didn't you feel that it was really rewarding and fulfilling in the end? (laughs) And like... (laughs) Having grown up in church circles, this sounds to me like some parents are like, I know what will keep my kid out of trouble, or like, I know what I'll do when my kid acts up. You know, I'll have him hand copy the Bible, right? Like, it, it, mm-hmm. it I, yeah, I, I think, I think, yeah. Cer-
0: yeah, it certainly seems that way rather than the alternative. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I also know people who, you know, hand hand copy Bible verses as, like, a devotional practice, but I do not think this was that. Right. And, yeah, oof. It was, it was, of, of a week of rough interviews, this was, I thought, the roughest.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was pretty bad. Although, I mean, I will, I will give a small amount of grace to Mike Richards about this. Because, like, Daniel, why did you put it on your card? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, if you really... That seems like... Yeah, it was this thing that totally sucked. Like, yes, why right. did you put it on your card? <laughs> yeah. Like, why, why did you write that down? Mm-hmm. If that's not something you, you really wanted to, like, tell pe- tell us about? Yeah. It-
1: and, like, who was... I mean, the contestant coordinators are lovely and have an enormous job. But, like, who was in the green room, like, rehearsing that story with him? You know, because they go over the stories with the contestants.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, normally. Um...
0: I and mean, I don't know maybe it was maybe in the green room it was more like a ha 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 no you know you'd think so but no it was actually kind of like not great oh, ha 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 kind of feeling or something Yeah
1: I yeah it, I think it was
0: just weird all around Yeah um
1: but yeah no I I would I I perceive forcing your child to handwrite the entire bible in two languages as like most likely kind of abusive and Probably not going to like endear them to the faith, right? Like, you don't like how did this get onto the stage? How,
0: right? Yeah, it, yeah, the whole situation was just kind of it was rough, uncomfortable. Yeah,
1: it was very uncomfortable. Uh, so, um, going into double jeopardy, Matt is at 17,600. Daniel's at 3,200. Elizabeth is at 1,200. And we have the double jeopardy categories 17th century names, Central American capitals, the Old Testament, food and drink, celebrities, and crossword clues M.
0: Uh, So, Daily Double number two, it's on the second pick. Uh, Elizabeth finds it. She is at 1,600, but she wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce this dream translator who resists and ends up being sent to jail. And she gets that correct with who is Joseph.
1: Mhm. And just two clues later, Daniel gets the third and final daily double. Um it's in 17th century names at the $2000 level. He has 4400. Uh, to Matt's 17,600 and Elizabeth's 3,600. And he makes it a true Daily Double, uh, as well he should. And he gets the clue. In 1637, this poet wrote Lycidas to commemorate the death of a Cambridge schoolmate. He knew it was... I did not know it was John Milton. He knew it was John Milton.
0: And it was nice to see that the Daily Doubles got spread out in this game.
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Matt got so many this week. Um... Yes, he did. But
0: it still ended up being a lock game Uh, going into final Jeopardy. uh, Matt is at thirty five thousand two hundred, which is it is a lock, but it's not that far because Daniel was at sixteen thousand four hundred. So it was close. It was close, Uh, and Elizabeth was at six thousand. And they get the uh, final Jeopardy! category, scientific etymology. And the clue, two of the three men for whom Armalcolite, a dark gray mineral discovered in 1969, is named. Elizabeth got it correct with who are Armstrong and Collins uh, of the Apollo 11 astronauts. And she wagered 5,000. Daniel did not hazard a guess. He gave a couple of question marks, which are not their names. Uh, so he dropped down to 11,999. And Matt got it correct. He only wagered a thousand, uh, with who are Armstrong and Aldrin. So he reaches that 20 day milestone.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, I did not manage to make the jump from Armalkolite to the Apollo astronauts so i was still being like with three three like you know i was i was like trying to think of like like who's a set of like three scientists three like geologists chemists Mm -hmm. you know um so like i had i hadn't made that connection i sometimes tell people who are who are saying that final jeopardy is is you know it's real oh it's so hard um is that uh the thing about final jeopardy is that it's almost always a thing you didn't know about some very familiar um, person or mm-hmm. place or thing. So I feel like that, that this fits that pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if
0: you were able to uh, look at 1969 and, and think of that event. Yeah. Then it could get you there pretty quick.
1: Exactly. So on Wednesday, we have Nick Riccio a social studies teacher from Mission Viejo, California, Maureen Skien, a research associate from Baltimore, Maryland, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose 20-day total is $678,801. And we have the Jeopardy! categories, action and suspense novels, It's a Gas, organizations, Can I Sell You Some Insurance on TV? Numerical entertainment and reduplicatives. I can't remember what the example was that Mike Richards gave. Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty, yes. Um, yeah, reduplicatives are uh, linguistic features where all or part of a word is repeated. Uh, I saw a cool video about reduplicatives in African American Vernacular English on TikTok uh, recently from like a from a, a black linguist who was talking about the ways that those are those are used um, in AAVE to like intensify or to distinguish a word from its you know its its slang use versus like a more traditional use. Anyway, it was it was kind of cool. Hmm. Yeah. That is cool. Yeah. So, like, you know, we're getting up early, like, eight? No, six. Oh, early, early. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, that that's a reduplicative. But in this case, the reduplicatives were, like, partial repetition of a word, like in Humpty Dumpty or helter-skelter, razzle-dazzle, those kinds of things. Yeah. 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 I thought there was some funny neg bait at the $1,000 level of organizations. Let me see the clue there was prince philip was mentored in bird watching by peter scott the first chairman of the wwf short for this group <laughs> and the correct answer here of course is the world wildlife fund mm-hmm. matt got that one but i i was <laughs> I, part of my brain saw what is wwf you know, like what organization is that the acronym yeah. for it? I was like, World Wrestling Federation. Wrestling Federation. I was like, No, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. <laughs> Go back.
0: Are you sure?
1: <laughs> I mean, who knows really <laughs> whether yeah. Prince Philip was mentored in bird watching by the chairman of the the uh, World Wrestling Federation? <laughs> um, I've never seen the movie Hocus Pocus, which was the eight hundred dollar level of reduplicatives.
0: You love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and yet you have not seen Hocus Pocus.
1: Is there a is there a connection? That, I mean, is it just no?
0: They're both, but they're both '90s.
1: Yeah. Okay. Spooky fair. Spooky
0: stuff. Yeah.
1: All right. Okay. Yeah, I feel it's like it's Beth Midler Hocus. Yeah, I should I should watch Hocus Pocus. I feel like it, it is a, it's a cult classic or among certain women of my generation in the same way that Buffy is. So I should probably watch sure. Hocus Pocus.
0: And it's less of a time commitment than the entirety of Buffy.
1: Yes, but...
0: <laughs> but it's Buffy. Not, But Buffy is worth it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay, Emily. We get it. <laughs> this game was much more competitive mm-hmm. than we have seen up to this point, um, which was cool. It was fun to see. Fun to see that it's not just always a, a, an absolute stomping.
1: Yeah. Maureen was really, really in there but Mm -hmm. only for so long. But
0: yeah. And Matt also found the first Daily Double. It was in the action and suspense novels category at the $600 level. Pick number 13. He was at 5,400 and he bet it all. Uh, And the clue is Marco Ramius of the Soviet Navy was dressed for the Arctic conditions normal to the submarine base in this book. Uh, And Matt got it correct. With what's Hunt for Red October, which is acceptable under Jeopardy rules, even though the name of the book is actually The Hunt for Red October.
1: Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there's no second work called simply Hunt for Red October. Um, at least not that
0: we know of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt is up to 11,200. Maureen is at 7,200 and Nick is at 2,400. And we get the double jeopardy categories: prized possessions across the USA, artists, famous families, 2020 Olympics in 2021, and in the dictionary with "in" in quotation marks.
1: And Matt hits daily double number two very early in the round at the sixteen hundred dollar level of across the USA. It's clue number three. He's at fourteen thousand eight hundred. At this point, to Maureen seventy two hundred and Nick's twenty four hundred, and he wagers six thousand. There it is, and gets the clue: this river flows through Richmond, Virginia, as well as a historic colonial settlement that bears its name. And he gets that one correct uh, with what's James? The James River. Yep. We had a, a Salvador Dali clue. Yes, we did that I got because of Kyle's deep dive. So y'all can go back and catch up on your Salvador Dali. And, right. uh, us. yeah. In the, in the dictionary category, there was a, Matt, Matt had a miss, uh, that turned into a triple stumper. The clue there was this French loan word means indifferent or nonchalant um and he said what is insuscent?" that was not accepted they were looking for insuciant i've seen that word in writing and i did guess it but i assumed without ever hearing it that it was pronounced insuscient with like a sh like an sh sound hmm. like like the ci a in official or electrician um Mm -hmm. so i'm sort of curious what would have happened if somebody had pronounced it that way i can i can see rejecting in susan i can't think of a a situation in which yeah see like the that c-i-a-n-t would just say sent um Mm -hmm. but the the, like c-i sometimes is pronounced as an s-h- but yeah. but Mike Richards was also the executive producer during the Barry, Barry, like the Barry Gordy scandal. Uh,
0: so <laughs> sc- who knows scandal. what would have been acceptable? Uh, yeah.
1: So, like, I just feel like M- Mike Richards, I don't know, like, I feel like he never sort of fully grasped the Jeopardy, hmm. like, culture, you know? like sure. Like, there are... Yeah. He, th- there were there were more kind of gotchas. I feel like mm-hmm. in his executive producing stint than than uh, in the previous administration. Um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Um. Yeah. So I wonder. And uh, the mention of the Marsalis family and the famous families made me think of your jazz deep dive, Kyle. I can't remember mm-hmm. how extensively. I feel like their names came up at least.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, Winton and Bradford. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I mentioned them. I don't know that I talked about them terribly much. Yeah. And Daily Devil number three is in the famous families category. It's at the two thousand dollar level. Uh, Matt finds it as well. It's pick number thirteen in this round. He is at twenty six thousand four hundred. Maureen's at seventy two hundred. Nick is at thirty two hundred. And he wagers four thousand. And he gets the clue. The first three doctors who worked at St. Mary's Hospital in Rochester, Minnesota, all had this last name. And he gets correct with what is Mayo.
1: So going into Final Jeopardy, uh, Matt is at 41200 Nick is at 8000 Maureen is at 7600 And we have the Final Jeopardy category, Authors. And the clue, in addition to knowing many languages and making up his own, he also taught language at the Universities of Leeds, and Oxford, I feel like this one is kind of a gimme. <laughs> it
0: sits it sits well in a lot of Jeopardy folks' knowledge. Yeah. I would say,
1: although it would be funny if it was like Psych. It's actually the Star Trek guy, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't know. <laughs> um, I have no idea whether whether Gene Roddenberry actually was the person who created the Klingon language. He probably wasn't, and I have no idea whether he has taught anything or speaks any languages at all. But it would be it would be funny. I'm sure
0: he, I'm sure he speaks at least one language. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's true. Maureen uh, had the correct response. Uh, who is Tolkien? J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, she wagered everything, uh, which brings her up to fifteen thousand two hundred. Nick did not come up with anything. He has who is question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Um, but he didn't wager anything. So that's fine. He stays at 8,000. Matt has the correct response with who is Tolkien, and he has wagered 20,000, bringing him up to 61,200 for his 21st win. Uh, surpasses Julia Collins uh, and becomes the uh the third place Jeopardy! champion for uh, for most wins in regular season play.
0: Yes, indeed. You know? So on Thursday, we have Keisha Virtue, a Senior Retail Research Analyst from Boca Raton, Florida, Emily Sharp-Keller, a Medical School Director of Admissions from Chicago, Illinois, and Madamodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose 21-day total is $740,001. And we have the Jeopardy! round categories During the William Henry Harrison administration, right here in River City, motorcycles, C-flat with C in quotation marks, more than one meaning, and Muhammad Ali, which uh, videos read by Hana Ali from the Ken Burns documentary.
1: Men missing questions about domestic arts is like one of my favorite Jeopardy <laughs> things. Uh, in the C flat category at a thousand. They had a picture and um, a clue about like that, the crisscross on this, you know, I can't remember the exact words and words. I don't have it in front of me, but it was like a, like an embroidery thing with a, with a, with a, with a, um, an X pattern and Matt, Guest crochet, Emily got the rebound. That's cross stitch.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we had a we had a weird clue in the river city category, or like weird responses. Yeah, right. the The clue is well south of Kansas. The original falls on the Wichita River in this state are gone, so the city built a new set upstream. And Emily guessed what is Kansas, probably because she just saw Wichita and was like, oh, it's Kansas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though it clearly stated that it's not Kansas. Right. Uh, and then Matt went south to Oklahoma, and that was incorrect. So Keisha went farther south mm-hmm. and guessed what is Texas. And that was correct.
1: Yeah. Daily Double number one comes up in the motorcycles category. It's at the $800 level. Matt finds it as the 20th pick. He's at 5,400 at that point to Emily's 2,600 and Keisha's 1,400. He makes it a true daily double. Uh, and he gets the clue on a motorcycle. It's a flip out lever on the side used to spin the engine and not an online money raiser. And Matt got stuck for a while. Um, and then as the time ran out he guessed handles uh, or handle i think it was um mm. that's incorrect they were looking for kickstarter yeah funded a few kickstarter projects in my day in your day yeah <laughs> been um,
0: around the kickstarter <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah yeah the online money raiser thing really really handed it to me although i know very little about motorcycles
0: hmm yeah that surprises me mm-hmm. you seem like a biker
1: yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do have one of those Harley Davidson tattoos.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, we know that, though. It's all over your social media.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Emily is in the lead at 4,600. Keisha's at 2,200. Matt is in the negative with negative 600. Yeah. Uh, so this is, this is a moment for the, for the challengers. They have, they have an opportunity here to, uh, to, to do things a little bit differently. Um, we have the double jeopardy categories. Let's visit Central Europe, a look at books, science and medicine, the first name their mom chose, prime numbers, and slow talk. Matt? starts out in the a look at books category at the thousand dollar level. The clue there was girl with curious hair with a tale of a Jeopardy wind streak" is a story collection by this late author of a long novel. And Matt got that one. That's David Foster Wallace. Um, that was one of my correct Jeopardy responses and I am currently reading that novel, Infinite Jest. I'm oh, not wow. sure I understand it. Okay. But I think maybe you're just supposed to pretend you understand it. I don't know if anybody understands Infinite Just hit us up on Twitter.
0: <laughs> I don't
1: understand what's going on. <laughs> but I'm fi- I'm like 500 I've never
0: read it so I don't know.
1: It is it is like 1100 pages and I am I am lost, but I'm I'm mm. pressing ahead because I've I'm 500 pages in. So <laughs>
0: And it's the sunk cost fallacy. Right?
1: <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> um, I I would like to be able to say I've read Infinite Jest. Um, sure. Yeah. All
0: right. Um, uh, Daily Double number two is in the Central Europe category at the eight hundred dollar level. Uh, Matt finds this one too. It's pick number twelve, and he is gotten himself up to the lead already. He's at 10,600. Emily's at 7,000 and Keisha's at 5,000. Uh, and he gets the, the clue. The German town of Baden-Baden is in the northwest corner of this wooded region. And he gets it correct with what is the Black Forest.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And Daily Double number three uh, comes up as the 21st pick at the $1,600 level of the first name their mom chose, and Matt finds this one as well. He's at 27200 at this point. Um, and uh, Emily's at 10200 Keisha's at 6200 and Matt wagers 2000 I feel like I could see kind of Emily know that when he hit that third daily double like the recognition that like that was that it, was it. Yeah. like that was like that was that was the chance right like mm-hmm. they they'd put up a really good fight but like their last shot there was for one of them to find that third daily double and make it a true daily double um right. so uh so Matt Matt finds it and, and wagers 2000 he gets the clue frontiersman kit carson and actor kit harrington this is, like, yet another deep dive throwback, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you talked about Kit Carson. I um, did talk about Kit yeah. Carson. Yeah. And Matt seemed like he was struggling with this one for a moment, but then got it. Uh, Kit is short for Christopher. So that was correct.
0: In the the name category at the $2,000 level, he mm-hmm. was asking about figure skater Sasha Cohen. And all I could think was Sasha Baron Cohen. Mm-hmm. Sasha Baron Cohen is that who is that? What you mean? Mm-hmm. Even though I, I like, I knew that Sasha was short for Alexandra or Alexander. You could it can be both. Boys mm-hmm. can also be Sasha. Yeah, as we know with Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, but yeah, I just kept thinking of Sasha Cohen, Sasha Baron Cohen. I just picture him figure skating. Anyway, at the end of the double Jeopardy round. Matt is at 30,400, Emily is at 11,800, and Keisha is at 5,800. So it is yet another lock for Matt. We mm-hmm. get the uh, final Jeopardy category, the 21st century. And the clue in 2009, this 11 year old started posting on BBC's Urdu language website under the screen name Gwul Makai. Keisha got it correct with Who is Malala and uh, wagered everything but 100, so she goes up to 11,500. Emily also wrote Who's Malala, but because this was double locked, she wagered zero and kept her second place, mm-hmm. 11,800. And Matt got it correct with Who's Malala, wagered 5,000, and moved up to 35,400. And there's discussion about it, right? They accepted her first name only mm-hmm. instead of requiring a last name. I mean I got to say if you have a like worldwide bestseller called
1: I Am Malala called
0: I Am Malala I think probably it's acceptable that if you say Malala Yeah so we know who you're talking about Yeah agreed
1: right? Yeah um so yeah I think normally in in Jeopardy you would expect a last name only to be accepted but not a first name only unless it is a mononym You know, like Cher Mm -hmm. or Madonna, but Malala, arguably, you know, she goes by Malala. Um, that's, that's a, a name she's famous, you know, by. So in this case, I think, I think the decision to accept Malala by itself. Um, totally makes sense. I have heard some p- people say, "Oh well, it's because Yousafzai is too complicated of a last name for people to remember." I, but that is that is nonsense. That's not it. And we that are shutting matter. that down. That no, <laughs> yeah. we're not doing that.
0: Nope, nope, mm-hmm. nope,
1: no. Nope, nope. No. But because she is, you know, like,
0: <laughs> she is she is known worldwide as Malala, mm-hmm.
1: and has and has chosen that right. Like she got to right. choose the yeah. title of her book, you know. Um, mm. yeah, so I think that's why it's valid. It is not because this, this name that is not more difficult than Dostoevsky Or yeah. or any other last name, yeah. right? No. Like there's, there's, yeah, no, yeah, there's the, yeah, no, it's, it, it is not because her last name is too complicated. That's not, yeah. that's not that's a not valid explanation.
0: Anyway, Matt moves up to 22 games one.
1: Mm hmm. And on Friday, September 17th, we have the contestants Odessa Modica Cherry, a retail manager from Westminster, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Sumit Sarkar, a journalist from New Rochelle, New York. Ooh, that's, uh, that's close to me. And Madamodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose 22 day winnings at this point total $775,401. And, uh, Apparently, September 17th is Constitution Day, which I could not have told you. Right. Now before, we know. Seeing now we know. Uh, so we had a themed Jeopardy! round board. Uh, the categories are we, in quotation marks, the people, a more perfect union, the common defense, the general welfare, and this constitution.
0: Uh, I hadn't noticed it on previous days, but... When I watched Friday's episode, maybe it's because I, I don't know. I I guess I paid a little bit more attention to like Mike Richards' intro. I, maybe because I was like, "Oh, this is the last one. Got to see if they, you know, what mm-hmm. they leave in." Uh, but I noticed the music is different. Mm, yes, the background, like especially at the end there, as it fades into the intro, it's very like dun 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 like like you know the evening news kind of. Music, which was uh, which it, it's interesting. It's a little more a uh, little more bassy, a little more yeah, a little more driving. It's interesting. I don't know if I like it. Jury's out.
1: Yeah, I'll uh, I'll think about that. I did notice it was different. I'm not sure if I have a firm opinion yet. Yeah, neither do I. I thought the common defense was kind of a cute category. It was all um, like excuses mm-hmm. that people give, like justifications. You know, the dog ate my homework and that kind of thing.
0: Mm -hmm. I have had students bring things in that are like chewed up and they're like, I, I know, I know this is a thing, but legitimately it got eaten. And I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. I see that.
1: Do it again. (laughs) I'll give I'll let
0: you, I'll let you redo it. I'm not going to punish you for that. Although you do need to like, (laughs) I'm not going to give you full credit because I, you have to demonstrate proficiency and a chewed up half piece of paper does not demonstrate proficiency. So I can't just mm-hmm. give you a grade.
1: Yeah, it does demonstrate that you like weren't lying when you said you did it. But Right. Yeah. But it doesn't actually give you anything to evaluate. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Daily double number 1 uh was in the the common defense category at the $800 level. It's pick number 10 and Matt found it. He was already up to 4600 over Semits 1800 and Odessa's 1000 and he bet it all and he got the clue. He just left a relationship. He doesn't want to ruin a friendship. Nope. This title of a no excuses bestseller. Uh, and Matt gets around to it and the correct response is uh, "What's he's just not that into you. Which I would have had a hard time getting out in order just because there are a lot of words there. But uh, yeah, he did it. He got it. So he doubled up.
1: Yep. I have heard a lot of opinions about the book and then the movie inspired by mm, mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. But I haven't actually uh, read or watched either of those myself. So, I don't know.
0: I have neither. I, I have not either. So, yeah. Who knows? Um, there are a couple of things in the pronunciation category that, like, I mean, listeners of the podcast know that I am not particularly great at pronunciation of foreign things or even probably like, you know, American English things. But I have like personal connection to both of these things and I I f- I just I just think they got them wrong and, and like you know I'm not gonna claim to be an expert on either of them, but the first one this these were in the um, the people categories. The first one was talking about the Tamil people and mm-hmm. of Sri Lanka and like I'm pretty sure that's how it's pronounced. Because I dated a Tamil girl in high school, and her family mm-hmm. came from Sri Lanka, and that's how they pronounced it. So Americans, I guess, pronounce it like Tamil or ta- Ooh. like, and and that's how Mike Richard pronounced it. And I was like, that. I mean, I know, I know there are like phonemes in Hindi and you know the, those languages that we just like don't get. At a, yes. at a certain point, like we're, our brains can't hear them or whatever, but it's so far off that it, it just it always gets me. And I know this is it's like not a big deal probably, but also we're talking about an entire group of people should maybe try and get it right. Um, yeah. But then again, it, you know, if you are of of that group of people and you're like, no, it's fine to pronounce it that way, then let me know and I'll you know stop thinking that. Um, and then the other one was the Koi um Hmm. Mike Richards pronounced it more like Koi Koi. Ooh. And okay. My brother, as I've mentioned in, before, uh, he was in the Peace Corps in Namibia, where the Kwekwe people are, and he actually learned Kwekwe as his like host language. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm pretty sure that it's more of an A sound at the end than an Oi. Hmm. But, but again, may, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. So anyway, that's mm-hmm. that's just yeah. my quibbles with some pronunciation things
1: hmm. Wikipedia has it as like the OI in choice, um, but I would trust somebody who, like, knows the, the people over yeah. what somebody put on Wikipedia.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I mean, again, I'm not an expert in this. I just have personal connections yeah. that have led me to think that that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Anyway, uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round. Matt is up to 12,400, Summit is at 4,200, and Odessa is at 3,600. And we get the double jeopardy categories Let's Visit Mars, Peace, Inventors and Inventions, Broadway on the Pop Charts, World of Words, and Two Books in One. They give a mashed up kind of before and after of two book titles. And mm-hmm. by the same author, and you have to give both the books. Yeah, which I thought was a weird approach to it. My my thought was like, why not just give the author? Um, but right, you have to give both the books. We, we had to uh, we had to identify uh, the German word Schadenfreude. Yes, Which you have already used in this uh, this here episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I had not watched the Friday episode at the time we that we re- recorded the intro. That was that was gratifying. Yep, to me, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, it was it was kind of perfect. Hmm.
0: There was a triple stumper in the invention and, and inventors category. Uh, it was uh, basically uh, what did Bartolomeo Cristofore? invent what musical instrument the the violin was guessed and the clarinet was guessed uh but that is the piano the piano mm-hmm. e forte which is named that way because it can play loud and soft unlike right. previous keyboard instruments
1: right yes i thought the broadway on the pop charts category was fun I'm trying to remember what all was in there um but we had a uh, um we had a clue about a song from Annie that, uh, that Jay-Z used um, and Matt Matt rang in on that one and started to say hard knocks life but corrected himself to uh, what is hard knock life. Yes. Uh, Daily Double number two comes up in the Let's Visit Mars category at the $1,600 level. It is pick number four and Matt finds it. He has 14000 at that point to submit 7,800 and Odessa's 3,600, Matt Wager's 8,000. And he gets the clue, visits by the Mariner probes in the 1960s disproved the existence of these first, quote unquote, observed in 1877 on Mars's surface. Um, and he gets that one correct. Uh, that's canals, um, which apparently are like an optical illusion. Hmm. Um Interesting. Mm-hmm. That shoots him way up, not completely out of reach, but it seemed it seemed not not impossible that somebody could overtake him. But right. that eight thousand dollar wager that really really moves him.
0: Yeah, really yeah,
1: out of range.
0: Yeah, and then he finds uh, Daily Double number three at pick number twenty three. It's in the Broadway and the Pop Charts category at the two thousand dollar level. Yeah, at that point he is at thirty four thousand four hundred. And Samet's at uh, 10600 And Odessa's at $2,800. Uh, so he's already completely out of reach. Uh, and mm-hmm. he wagers 2000 Guess the clue. Ariana Grande's Seven Rings riffed on My Favorite Things by this pair. So 90% of the royalties go to the rights holders for that song. Uh, and he, at first, didn't seem to quite know what it was asking. But then he, he got around to it with uh, who are Rodgers and Hammerstein.
1: Mm-hmm. I thought I saw him kind of fact check himself for a second, mm-hmm. also to make sure he had the right pair. Yeah, because there are a few kind of iconic pairs in Broadway. Uh, so, for like the uh, my favorite things is from The Sound of Music, and that's a that's a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, obviously. Um, but Lerner and Lowe were, I think, active in the, around the same period. Like mm-hmm. all of those kind of Golden Age of Broadway right. There's musicals, Rogers like Heart. Yep. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that Ariana Grande song though. That's a fun one. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. So, uh going into final jeopardy, Matt is at 38,400, Summit is at 11,400, Odessa is at 3,200, and we have the final jeopardy category 19th century U.S. politics, and the clue, named after a U.K. political party that helped depose a king, the U.S. Whig Party was formed to oppose this man. And, uh, Kyle, you've talked about this on the podcast. I have talked
0: about this on the podcast. Why yeah. the Whigs were the Whigs.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. So, Odessa has it correct with who is Jackson, who is Jackson? Andrew Jackson, King Andrew, as it were, mm-hmm. and she's wagered everything, thirty-two hundred. That brings her up to sixty-four hundred. Sumit has guessed who is Calhoun. Not a terrible guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's wagered four thousand nine hundred ninety-nine. That drops him to sixty-four hundred one, a dollar above Odessa. This game was double locked, so you know. It's- Smart wager on his point. It sort of shows that he knows what he's doing. Lands him in second place. And Matt has the correct answer. Who is Jackson? Or the qu- correct question, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and a wager of 12000 which brings him up to 50400 for the day. And $825,801 for his 23 wins overall. Um, <laughs> Mike Richards gives me one more moment of schadenfreude Mm -hmm. as he says we'll see you monday um no we won't (laughs) yeah not, not so fast mike uh we will we will see matt on monday yep yeah so um so yeah that's uh that brings the mike richards era to a close yes indeed yeah and Wait, who's hosting on on Monday? It's going to be My, Mayim Bialik. Yeah. Is, is Mayim okay? All right, good, good. Mayim yes, Bialik that's... will be
0: in on. Uh, yeah, we'll be in on Monday, uh, mm-hmm. and we'll be for a while. The decision has been made that she and Ken Jennings will be splitting hosting duties mm-hmm. uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, as their schedules allow.
1: Yes. So uh, this is the moment when we take a break to remind you that we have a Patreon. Uh, you can check it out. It's patreon.com slash potent potables. Your uh, small monthly donation helps make it possible for us to keep doing this thing without taking a financial hit to uh, on the, on the hosting and whatnot. We will be real with you. We put a lot of time into this and we need to either cut this back to a shorter podcast to cut down on the editing load involved, or we need to get enough Patreon income to outsource some of that editing. So if you've been listening to the podcast, and you love the podcast, and you have a few extra bucks a month, that you can throw our way uh to help us keep doing what we're doing in the way we're doing it we would really appreciate it so patreon.com slash potent potables if that is something you're interested in and we'll try and um we'll try and hold up our end of the bargain a little bit better uh by (laughs) throwing some more content on there that's fair um yeah but hey there are things in the world that are more important than our fun little podcast so uh We like to point people toward blacklivesmatter.com and communityjusticeexchange.org as a couple of places that we like to uh, find an entry point to, you know, doing something for the world. So uh, if you're looking for places to connect, either of those or the Stop AAPI Hate GoFundMe are some causes that are close to our hearts. Yeah, Thanks. So uh, with J Archive down, Kyle, I'm not going to ask you for deep dive guesses because <laughs> compiling those would be onerous. But I, I, and I don't think you would get it because I'm going in a very weird direction for me. Um, I think the obvious guess would have been uh, the the like the the Mount Moriah clue, yeah, from the Old Testament category. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, I think I've said on the podcast uh, that it was like embarrassingly recently that I was able to distinguish boxing from wrestling, <laughs> um, and there were <laughs> and there were a couple of triple stumpers in the Muhammad Ali category. Uh, one was about Leon Spinks, the other was about Joe Frazier. I did not know either of those names, and so I started thinking like, where would I even start? And so instead of doing a deep dive on either of those specific athletes. I thought it would be good for me to learn a little bit more about boxing in general. Uh, so maybe some of this is going to be like embarrassingly rudimentary for some listeners. And so I apologize if that's the case. Um, But this is let's call, we're going to call this a deep dive on boxing. For people who know that boxing is different from wrestling, but that's about it. Okay. Um, Catchy title so, there. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about how boxing as a sport developed. Um, there's all of this terminology that kind of flies around that I'm like, I don't know what that means. I just know those are boxing or wrestling words. Um, so I, I looked into those a little bit, tried to figure out like um, how a match is structured and what's going on with how you decide who the winner is. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about sort of very basic outlines of like uh, men's professional boxing since it kind of developed as like an organized sport. Um, so like on the level of like a handful of major names um, from each decade, but you know not not in super detail. So like Leon Spinks does not even come up in this in this deep dive because we're not like that's like another level of detail down from uh, from what I could cover. But I do actually feel pretty good about the amount of information I learned about boxing. Nice. So cool. it's definitely not wrestling. So here we go. Boxing goes way back in history, which is not super surprising because like, <laughs> it's basically just like organized fist fighting, Right. People have been right? punching each other um, for a long time. <laughs> like you, 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 you know, it's like, it's kind of like, I mean, I don't know. It feels sort of like primal in the same way that you're like, when did, you know, you can't be like, when did racing start? You know, like... Yeah. Like, who's best at running? Who's best at punching each other, right? Like, it's not surprising that these contests have been happening for millennia. There are depictions of boxing in ancient art. Um, it was part of the ancient Greek Olympics. It was a popular spectator sport in in ancient Rome. But, of course, it wasn't, you know, the same as modern boxing. Um, so, a predecessor of modern boxing emerges in Great Britain in the 17th and 18th centuries. It's bare-knuckled. It's very chaotic. People are dying. Uh, and sets of rules start to emerge often sort of set by the particular venue or area or group. Uh, the London prize ring rules introduced measures that remained in effect for professional boxing to this day. Uh, the London prize ring rules, um, uh, created in 1838. So rules like uh, no butting, gouging, scratching, kicking, biting, um, hitting a man while he's down, holding the ropes, or using stones or hard objects in the hands. Uh, so that's that's the earlier part of the 19th century. Um, but in 1867, we get to the Marquess of Queensbury rules, which I think we've touched on a little bit on yeah. the podcast a little bit which are put into practice for amateur championships held in London for lightweights, middleweights and heavyweights. Uh the Marquess of Queensbury rules are written by Welshman John Graham Chambers. These rules were the first to mandate the use of gloves uh which protect the the hands of the boxers. The rules specified 3-minute rounds with 1-minute rests in between. Uh they specified that a boxer who had been downed had a had a count of ten to stand, um, and there were there were a number of other specifications that uh, carry through um, in some form uh, to this day. I mentioned lightweight, middleweight, and heavyweight. Uh, so let's let's take a moment to talk about weight classes in boxing. Um, so size discrepancies between boxers um, made. Matches dangerous for the smaller boxer and less satisfying for spectators. Right, like the mm-hmm. big guy can just you know sort of crush the little guy. It's not fun to watch. Um, so weight classifications emerge fairly early, um, and the most influential weight classes were from the National Sporting Club of London and the ones contained in the 1920 Walker Law uh, in New York State, which established the New York State Athletic Commission. Um, so there were. Eight original weight classes, um, also known as the traditional, classic, or glamour divisions. Um, and the exact weights associated with these classes have varied historically and, like, kind of go up over time as, like, people get bigger on average. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> but um, I I sort of looked at how these have been defined over time, and I've got, like, very rough approximations for these. So so going from heaviest to lightest, the, uh, the eight... Uh, glamour divisions are heavyweight, which is in the like 200 plus pound kind of range. Um, light heavyweight, which sounds like an oxymoron, right. um, is uh 175-ish. Middleweight is around 160. Welterweight is the next one down. I feel like I'd heard that one all the time and I was like, I don't know. Uh, Is it heavy? Is it light? I don't really know. It's a welter. It's it's between middleweight and lightweight. It's a, it's 145 ish. Uh, Lightweight is 135 ish. Featherweight is around 125. Um, and then these next last couple ones are kind of the closer together as you get lighter. Uh, bantamweight is in the 118 range. Flyweight is around 112. And, uh, boxers can opt to compete in a higher division. A high, like a higher weight class but not a lower weight class which sort of makes intuitive sense those are the eight original but newer divisions have been added to create more championship categories and to make it easier for fighters to move among divisions uh the newer categories are called tweener divisions i think because they go between the the eight original <laughs> um bridger weight is one that you hear so that i've heard sometimes that's in the like 200 to 224 with heavy weight kind of moving up um, into higher weights. Uh, And then cruiser weight is below that around the like 175 to 200 weight range. And then straw weight is like even lighter than flyweight, maximum of 105 pounds. Um, And then there's a bunch of uh, tweener divisions that where you just take the name of one of the traditional... Uh, divisions and add super if you mean like a little heavier okay. or light if you mean a little lighter. Um, so, for example, in modern boxing, middleweight is one fifty four to one sixty, but super middleweight is one sixty 160 to one sixty eight, and light middleweight is one forty seven to one fifty four. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of how those all break down. So, what actually happens in a boxing match? I don't know. I still haven't watched one. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> the match is like the whole thing um i'm going to sound like an idiot here but if you hear people say about or a fight those are not separate terms those are all mean the same thing which probably seems intuitive if you know that but if you don't you're like are those are those separate am i supposed to have different different definitions for those yeah so match is the whole thing it's made up of 3 minute rounds with 1 minute breaks in between how many rounds used to vary Early on in the history of boxing, um, it was standardized to 15 rounds for professional boxing. And then in 1982, after the death of Duke Ku Kim in a fight against Ray Mancini, uh, it was reduced to 12 rounds as part of reforms that were intended to make boxing safer for the fighters. A boxing match is controlled by a referee who works within the ring to judge and control the conduct of the fighters uh, and rules on their ability to fight safely. Uh, the referee counts uh, for knockdown fighters um, and rules on fouls. Um, and then there are up to three judges ringside scoring the match uh, seated from different vantage points. And there's some different ways a winner can be determined. Um, if one fighter is knocked down for a count of ten at any point in the match, that's a knockout, and that's one way that the match can end with the with the you know the one who wasn't knocked out winning. And then a technical knockout that's a that's a TKO. Mm-hmm. I had always assumed the T stood for total, um, <laughs> <laughs> which was embarrassing. But then I asked somebody else what TKO stood for, and they're like, I don't know. I think total knockout. Um, so. Technical knockout is what TKO is. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's when that's when the referee, the fight doctor or one of the one of the boxers or or their, you know, their coach, someone in their corner decides that that a fighter is unable to safely continue. Some sanctioning bodies also have a three knockdown rule, where if a fighter is knocked down three times in a round, that results in a technical knockout. A match can also end in disqualification in the case of a serious and intentional foul. Um, so as just, you know, just, just a random example, um, if someone bites a portion of their opponent's ear off, they would be disqualified. (laughs) If an accidental foul causes about ending injury, there's a bunch of different things that can happen that seems a little bit more complicated. Um, it can result in a no contest outcome where there's no winner, no loser. It's like it just didn't happen or it might be ruled as a knockout or decided based on points. If none of those things happen and the match goes for all of the rounds which is called going the distance. Um, Then the match is decided by those three judges based on their scoring. There's been variations in scoring systems, um, but professional boxing now is scored with what's called a 10 must system. Uh, So the judges must award one of the two boxers, 10 points in each round. Mm. So the winner, they've determined in their opinion who the winner is and that fighter gets 10 points and then, if it was if it was really very evenly matched, both could be awarded ten. If it's a tie, then both get ten po- points. But someone must get ten points. Typically, the loser is awarded nine points, but there can be deductions for knockdowns and fouls. Some of the factors that judges assess to determine scores are clean punching, effective aggressiveness, uh, ring generalship. So, sort of you know controlling the the match and defense. Uh, scoring is somewhat subjective, which leads to controversial results, right? All of the like, you yeah. know, he was robbed, right? Like all of that, like, it's because a judge is, it's because judges are sitting there and sort of determining who they think is doing better. Uh, if all three judges choose the same fighter as the winner, that fighter wins by what's called a unanimous decision, that's obvious. Um, if two judges think that one boxer won the fight and the third judge thinks it's a draw, that's called a majority decision. If two judges think it's one and the third judge thinks it's the other, um, the first one wins by what's called a split decision. If one judge chooses one boxer as the winner, the second judge chooses the other boxer, and the third judge calls it a draw, then the bout is ruled a split draw. Mm. And there, there's a few other ways that it can, a few other permutations. But those are, those are kind of the the, the major interesting ones. I think if they all call it a draw, then it's a draw. That's not you know, okay. etc. There are three main boxing styles. And I think I'd encountered some of these words, but never n- knew what they meant. they're outside fighter, also known as a boxer, right? And if you've, ca- and ca- you're like, well, of course he's a boxer, right? Like it's boxing. Um, right. <laughs> uh, <they're, laughs> brawler or slugger is the second. And then uh, inside fighter or swarmer. So the outside fighter or boxer style um, seeks to maintain distance between uh, the boxer and his opponent, um, they fight with faster, longer range punches, uh, heavy use of the jab, gradually wearing the opponent down. Outfighters tend to win by point decisions rather than by knockouts because they're relying on weaker punches, and that's kind of how that how that strategy works. They're often regarded as the best boxing strategists. Uh, it's very much about controlling the pace of the fight and wearing their opponent down. Brawler... Uh, is a fighter who uh, which i assumed was pejorative rather than um, <laughs> <laughs> rather than a, a de- description of like a like a like a stylistic thing um so a brawler is a fighter who is less focused on finesse and footwork and more focused on power typically preferring a less mobile more stable kind of style uh, tend to have difficulty pursuing fighters who are fast on their feet a brawler's most important assets are power and chin, which is uh, that refers to like the ability to sort of absorb punches and and continue uh, boxing. They tend to have a higher chance than other fighting styles to score a knockout against their opponents because they're focusing on landing big powerful hits instead of smaller, faster attacks or the kind of long game of wearing the opponent down. Um, and then infighters or swarmers, um, also sometimes called pressure fighters, try to get close and stay close to an opponent. Um, throw intense flurries and combinations of hooks and uppercuts. In-fighters tend to operate best at close range. Uh, they tend to be shorter. They have less reach than their opponents and so are more effective at the short distance where, where their opponent's longer arms can make punching awkward. Many short infighters use their stature to their advantage. Um, they use a bob and weave defense, bending to get underneath or to the sides of incoming punches. And, uh, unlike blocking, causing an opponent to miss a punch kind of disrupts the balance that lets them kind of get in and do their, do their thing. Yeah. I sound like an idiot, but <laughs> it's okay. It. Uh, outfighters, infighters, brawlers, mm-hmm. these are, they they're, they're technical terms I learned. All right. So boxing was not generally regarded as a legitimate sport in its, the earlier part of its history, late 19th century into early 20th, uh, outlawed in England and much of the US. Boxing matches tended to take place at gambling venues. Um, a British court ruled that boxing could be prosecuted as assault, despite oh. the uh, the consent of the participants. In the first part of the 20th century, the United States became the center of the kind of professional boxing world. It was generally accepted that the world champions were those listed By the police gazette. Um, (laughs) Yep. And then we have um, uh, sanctioning bodies emerge over the course of the 20th century. The National Boxing Association began to sanction title fights after 1920. Uh, The Ring magazine was founded, listing champions um, and awarding championship, championship belts. The National Boxing Association was renamed in 1962 to become the World Boxing Association... Um The following year, a rival body, the World Boxing Council was formed in 1983, the International Boxing Federation. And in 1988, another world sanctioning body, the World Boxing Organization was formed. Uh, so there are four major ones. There are also a number of more minor ones. At this point, a boxer has to be recognized by these four bodies to be considered the undisputed world champion uh, in a given division. So kind of going back to the beginning and hitting some some major names. Jim Corbett, known as Gentleman Jim, was the first world heavyweight champion under the Queensbury rules in 1892. Uh, that's a name I'd encountered in a Jeopardy context. Mm-hmm. And then in 1900, uh, the state of New York enacts the Lewis Law, uh, banning prize fights except for those held in private athletic clubs between members of the club. Uh, so thus, when introducing the fighters, the announcer would frequently add the phrase both members of this club. Uh, there's a famous uh, boxing painting titled Both Members of This Club hmm. by George Wesley Bellows. On December 26, 1908, heavyweight Jack Johnson became the first black heavyweight champion um, and a highly controversial figure in a racially charged era. If you've ever heard the phrase, the great white hope, hmm. uh, that actually comes from this era referring to uh, first Jim Jeffries and later other white boxers who fans hoped would defeat the black champion uh great white hope it's a white boxer yikes racism Mm. it's everywhere in 1920 as i mentioned the walker law legalized prize fighting in new york state and uh established the new york state athletic commission and in response the national boxing association was established those two bodies, the New York State Athletic Commission and the National Boxing Association, sometimes crowned different world champions in the same division, uh, leading to some confusion about who was the real champion. In the 1920s, the major, sort of the most significant figure in boxing is Jack Dempsey. Uh, he's hugely commercially successful. Uh, the first radio broadcast of a boxing match is one of Jack Dempsey's matches. In the 1930s, we see the emergence of Joe Lewis, that's uh, another big name to to know, uh, who held the heavyweight championship from 1937 all the way through to 1949. Uh, the Second w- World War brought a lull in competitive boxing, um, so Joe Lewis was fighting mostly in exhibitions. Um, but after the war, he continued his reign with new stars emerging in other divisions, uh, most notably Sugar Ray Robinson, uh, who was... Widely regarded as the greatest pound for pound fighter of all time. He was uh, held the world welterweight title uh, in the late 1940s, the world middleweight title five times between 1951 and 1960. Jake LaMotta was one of his middleweight rivals. Um, it's, a, it's a big name mm-hmm. from uh, the, the Raging Bull guy, right? And uh, there's lots of mafia involvement in boxing at this time. In the 1950s, a big name to know, you already know it, it's Rocky Marciano, uh, who held the heavyweight championship from 1952 to 1956. Another big name in the 1950s is Archie Moore, who held the world light heavyweight title for 10 years and scored more knockout victories than any other boxer in history. Hmm. In the early 1960s, Floyd Patterson started out as the heavyweight champion, was defeated by Sonny Liston, uh, who then... Uh, In turn, was defeated by uh, Cassius Clay, who would change his name to Muhammad Ali. Hopefully, we all know a little bit about him. Um, Even I know a little bit about him. Um, Muhammad Ali would become the most iconic figure in boxing history. I don't think that's I I think that's unarguable. He refused to serve in the Vietnam War, uh, which resulted in the stripping of his boxing titles. Um, His case worked its way through the court's. Eventually, ending with the Supreme Court ruling in his favor. F- in his f- favor, <laughs> Supreme <laughs> Court ruling in his favor. Uh, his boxing licenses were reinstated, and he was able to return to the sport in 1971. This was a huge era for heavyweight boxing. Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier and George, George Foreman mm-hmm. um, of Grill fame.
0: Yes, Grill <laughs> <of laughs> fame.
1: <laughs> um, and naming are, all his
0: sons George.
1: Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> So the, those are a few kind of 1970s big name heavyweight boxers. Uh, the late 1970s was sort of the end of universally recognized champions with different bodies um, beginning to recognize different champions and top contenders, more sort of perception of corruption um, in the sport. And the late 1970s also saw boxing becoming more oriented toward the casino industry and public broadcasts starting to be replaced by uh, closed circuit and ultimately pay-per-view broadcasts um, with the boxing audience shrinking in numbers. In the 1980s, we have ongoing kind of corporate battles between the different sanctioning organizations. Uh, Muhammad Ali is no longer in the sport and has kind of left a left a void. And uh, in 1986, uh, Mike Tyson emerges as kind of the new Face of heavyweight boxing, uh, nicknamed Iron Mike, he won the heavyweight unification series in 1986 and 1987 uh, to become the world heavyweight championship champion at the age of 20 um, and the first undisputed champion in a decade. Hmm. His career was tumultuous um, allegations of domestic violence and a divorce um, and then a rape conviction and a three year incarceration subsequent to that. So, Mike Tyson, um, yikes. Yeah. Um, Going to prison kind of takes him out of the field. Evander Holyfield and Riddick Bowie emerge as top heavyweights in the early 90s. In the lighter weights, we have a number of world champions kind of duking it out. (laughs) So to uh, speak, So to speak. Uh, Robert Duran, Marvin Hagler, I hope I said his name right, uh, Thomas Hearns, Sugar Ray Leonard, And uh, Oscar De La Hoya is another name that was coming up as I was looking at this era. Um, And then Mike Tyson uh, gets out of prison and makes a comeback, uh, which took an unexpected turn when he was uh, defeated by Evander Holyfield in 1996. And then in their 1997 rematch, Tyson bit a chunk out of Holyfield's ear and was disqualified. And uh, that brings us up to the 21st century. Um, The story of boxing in the 21st century, I think, is less about champions and more about boxing kind of decreasing in popularity and getting crowded out or replaced by mixed martial arts. Mm -hmm. Uh, But boxing has grown in popularity in Germany and Eastern Europe and Britain to some extent. Uh, And uh, this cultural shift is reflected in some of the changes in championship title holders uh, Vladimir and Vitali Klitschko are brothers from the Ukraine who've held a number of championships. The heavyweight division has been characterized as, you know, not having any kind of major, like world class talent, um, especially among American fighters. So, uh, lower weight classes have a little bit of a higher profile. Um, some names that you might hear uh, include Bernard Hopkins, Floyd Mayweather Jr., Pacquiao. And uh, there, there are two boxing halls of fame. Given how many, how many sanctioning bodies there are, I guess it's not too surprising that there are rival organizations there. Uh, the International Boxing Hall of Fame is in Canastota, New York, and opened in 1989. Um, but then, in 2013, a rival institution in Las Vegas opened, uh, founded by. Uh, Steve Lott, the former assistant manager for Mike Tyson, um, and its claim to fame is that it has acquired exclusive rights to um, ESPN's like video library of boxing fights, which I guess they they uh, they think is kind of their their edge over the uh, over the older institution. Mm. So that's boxing. (laughs) I hope I didn't embarrass myself too much. And I hope that if you didn't know anything about boxing, maybe you do now. Yeah. I bet you know. I bet you knew something about boxing, Kyle. This was probably I, on the basic side for you.
0: I, I knew a little bit. I mean, I certainly learned. Yeah. Certainly learned more in this last thirty minutes. So thank yeah.
1: you. All right. So are you ready for a quiz?
0: Absolutely.
1: All right. Uh, the theme of this quiz is box. Okay. <laughs> um, box. So um, question number one. In 1849, Henry Box Brown, Box is a nickname, Box in quotation marks, was willingly secured inside a wooden crate labeled Dry Goods for 27 hours. Why? In
0: 1849? 1849. In a box labeled Dry Goods. I don't know the name Henry Brown. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he's related to you?
1: Oh, no relation marriage? as far as I know. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I assume all all people named Brown are related to me by marriage.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm related yeah, to all Joneses. That's how that works. Jones mm-hmm. is not common either, so. Um, I truly. 27 hours. 1849. Mm hmm. What happened in 1849? I don't know. I don't think
1: you need to I don't think you need to tie it to a specific event in 1849. Just why was he just cut? the, just the <laughs> general he... milieu? <laughs> he was secured inside the box in Virginia.
0: Labeled dry goods in 1849. Was he escaping to freedom? Yes! Okay. Oh, okay. I I I had the thought like it sounds like a person stowing away or escaping somewhere, mm-hmm. but I like I yeah. don't know where to put that.
1: Yes, he escaped slavery by having an accomplice mail him from Virginia to um a member of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society in Philadelphia. Nice. Uh, where he was um where he was uh freed from <laughs> freed from, from his the box and bondage. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Um yeah, he was he was inside the box for 27 hours. It was carefully marked this side up or, you know, however you Mm -hmm. marked, marked something like that. Um, But not too surprisingly, if anyone has ever had a a fragile. He he spent he spent substantial portions of the 27 hours upside down. Mm -hmm. He had one air hole, but didn't they didn't want to do more than that. Right for fear of discovery mm-hmm. it's a pretty cool story um and if you want a story about that like a picture book about it for kids henry's freedom box <laughs> okay uh, yeah okay uh so you're at 10 points question two. Oh, last thing about this um the box that he was that he was packed and measured three feet by two feet eight inches by two feet Mm-mm. so Mm-mm. it was cramped yeah um yeah um all right question two uh the 2016 album boxes is the 11th studio album by what American rock band better known for hits including iris and slide
0: oh man ah oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh you got this one (laughs) episode (laughs) oh god this is what i get for still not paying attention to that
1: this is where we find out whether i outbuzzed kyle or whether he didn't know it
0: i did not know it that's guaranteed it was a pop music question of course i didn't know it um i have no idea i'm not gonna i'm not gonna get to one uh radio head I don't
1: know. Alright, it's the it's the goo goo dolls. The goo
0: goo dolls, yeah. No. I had no yeah, absolutely no reason to go there as opposed to anywhere else.
1: Yeah. Yeah, listeners, uh,
0: that of course was a question on our on our episode.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, it was identifying the song slide mm-hmm. from I think they gave I think they gave the name of the band and some lyrics. Some of the lyrics, yep. Yeah. yeah. That was the last last one we had before the round ended. Mm. Um it was also the category with chumbo Wumba. Yeah. That was a great category for me i should have gone should have gone there <laughs> we left the 2000 on the board it could have been different all right yeah so boxes was their 11th studio album uh it was the first of their studio albums to not debut in the top 10 since the 1998 album dizzy up the girl mm-hmm. um and uh not especially critically acclaimed <laughs> found some review that was like it was like they've embraced their middle age <laughs> <laughs> nice. um all right question three spoiler warning although i'm not giving uh i'm not indicating what it's spoilers for so i guess you know if you hate spoilers go forward 30 seconds or a minute there is an iconic climactic scene in a 1995 film directed by, by david fincher in which Brad Pitt's character asks Morgan Freeman's character what's in the box. Mm. So, Kyle, what is in the box?
0: I I mean, I thought I thought we didn't find out specifically.
1: I like, guess we don't. We're led, we don't really.
0: We I believe we're led to believe that it's his wife's head.
1: Yes, yes. that is correct. Okay. That's what I was going for. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would have also accepted Gwyneth Paltrow's head. Yeah. Uh, so the movie is seven, of course. And the ending of the screenplay actually was in a rejected version of the screenplay. The studio had seen the original with the, the head in the box ending and asked for a more action oriented, less grim ending to be written which it was and then the original one was sent to david fincher by accident ah. um, but then when david fincher found out about the mix up he said he would only sign on to the project if the head in a box ending was retained the studio agreed but then kept you know kind of trying to back out like can we shoot another ending you mm-hmm. know let's explore like uh, and david fincher and brad pitt had to both really strongly advocate for the um for the ending that we that we know which has come to be really kind of iconic yes uh in film yeah so you're at 20 points okay question four what is the term from science and computing which describes a system which can be viewed in terms of its inputs and outputs without any knowledge of its internal workings
0: it's gotta have box on it
1: mm-hmm i know this term I have a hint if you need it. Sure. Um the same term is used, although, you know, kind of with a with a different meaning in aviation. Oh, black box? Yep. Oh, okay. Yes, black box is correct. Oh, black box computer. Yep. 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 Uh so the term black box comes from science and computing, um, but it's also been adopted in other fields, um, especially in psychology, right? The idea that human behavior is a black box, we can see what happens, but we don't have really like access to like the the why and the how yeah. of like someone's internal, you know, like you know, neurology and cognition. All right, you're at 30 points. And question five. In 1871, a patent was issued to Albert Jones for what alliterative innovation, which would prove to be invaluable in the history of boxes. The patent title is "Improvement in Paper for Packing."
0: Improvement in paper for packing, and it's uh, and it's alliterative. Mm-hmm. Is it corrugated cardboard?
1: It is corrugated ah. cardboard. Yes. Corrugated apparently comes from the Latin for wrinkled. Hmm. Um, yeah. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're at 40 points. Okay. And we're going to call the final category uh, children's literature.
0: I have children and mm-hmm. I have literature,
1: so I should <laughs> bet 35 <laughs> so you should bet 35. Okay. Alright. So for for seventy-five, if you're correct, mm-hmm. here is your clue. Henry, Jesse, Violet, and Benny are the titular characters in what children's series by Gertrude Chandler Warner?
0: Honestly, I have no idea, but just thinking of the the fact that Box needs to be in it, I'm going to say the boxcar children.
1: The Boxcar Children is correct. Um, I
0: have not. Yeah. (laughs) I read those, you know, when I was a kid, but I do not remember them at all.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, The Boxcar Children was originally published in 1924 and reissued as a shorter version in 1942, geared toward, like, second grade to sixth grade, I think is the age range, they say. Uh, the first book tells the story of four orphans who create a home for themselves in an abandoned boxcar they find in the forest. Um, they're eventually reunited with their grandfather and then they, they solve mysteries. Yeah. So you are finishing the quiz with 75 points. Yeah. Very nice.
0: Feels nice. Yeah. Good to get back into it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so thanks for making a podcast with me. Of course. And, uh, yeah and thanks listeners for spending your time with us make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts uh leave a rating or review if you'd be so kind um we need patreon supporters so if you're able to check out our patreon it's patreon.com slash potent potables and if you have friends who are into jeopardy or podcasts um let them know about us
0: That's right. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is PotentPotablesCast at gmail.com and our website is PotentPod.com.
1: That's right. Uh, Unlike Mike Richards, we will be back next week.
0: (laughs) Good change at the drop of a hat. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah uh, if people listen to
0: our podcast who knows what will happen
1: mm-hmm. yeah we, we're planning to be back next week. i get, like mike richards we're planning yeah. <laughs> to be back next week so um until then may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker